Hello and welcome to Across the River, a podcast that weaves together death and dying, tarot, and witchcraft. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Sarah. We are not experts of any kind, simply two witches who like to think and talk about death, dying, and divination. We invite you to journey with us across the river. We are recording across the river in Toronto, Ontario, also known as Tecoronto. The land that holds this city is and has been for millennia a home to many diverse First Nations and Indigenous, Inuit, and Métis peoples, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. The land teaches us about the cycles of birth, death, decay, and rebirth. We're grateful for the opportunity to live in and learn from this land. Okay. Okay, now we're recording. It's going really well. (laughs) (laughs) We could maybe leave that in. Um, Maybe we will. It's a little different from our like standard, we've like had a standard intro going and this time it's like me repeatedly hitting play instead of record is how how this session has started. Full disclosure for this episode, we are both uh, a little tired, I think. Yeah, we're a little tired. (laughs) But um, we're really excited to get into today's topic. Before we do, though, actually, I think we need to put in a content warning. Mm. Um, We are going to be talking about the myth of Persephone today. Mm -hmm. And in certain versions of that myth, um, uh, sexual assault is involved. Yes. So uh, we will be touching on that. And um, if that is something that you are not in a place to be able to listen to... um, yeah, just um, take care of yourself in whatever way you need to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are some tough elements to that myth, and if it's not feeling like a place that you want to visit right now, absolutely, you know, come back and, and check in with us uh, next next dark moon, or maybe save this for a time when it feels like a place that you want to explore. Um, thank you for bringing that in, because I was thinking that myself, talking about... So today's episode, we are talking about... Psychopomps, mm-hmm. the Persephone myth, and underworld journeys. Yes. And that might mean that we're also talking about metaphorical underworld journeys in terms of traveling to a difficult place and then returning. Mm-hmm. And so that might mean that we end up talking a little bit about healing from trauma. trauma. Yeah. And so um, just be aware that if that's something that uh, you are experiencing or have experienced, we might be touching on that. Um, and we'll try and, uh, we'll try and, well, I think you, you'll be able to hear when we're coming Mm -hmm. up to that. You might be able to skip ahead a little bit and rejoin us at a later point in the episode. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah. Underworld journeys. Underworld journeys. (laughs) (laughs) Um, why are we talking about this right now? We are talking about this right now because when this episode comes out, it will be the spring equinox. Yes, finally. (laughs) Which means that we will be turning towards the late half of the year. Mm -hmm. And 
I don't know about you, but this winter has definitely been an underworld journey for me. Yep. <laughs> it has been long. Mm-hmm. It has been dark. Mm-hmm. It has been cold. It has been gray. Gray. So gray. Mm-hmm. It is gray right now. However, <laughs> it is warmer. Mm-hmm. Have, if you've stepped outside today. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the light is coming back. I think this past weekend for us was daylight savings time, so yes. we're getting a little more light in the evenings now. Yes. I always really, I'm of two minds about that time change. There is a part of me that feels like it's cheating to mm-hmm. suddenly get a whole extra hour of light in the evening. It feels like, <laughs> um, you know, not quite the, uh, <laughs> it feels like a, it does feel like a spring forward, as they say. Like, it feels like we've skipped a little bit of time and then suddenly we're, we're a little mm-hmm. bit later in the progression. So, you know, part of me thinks, you know, maybe we shouldn't ever change our clocks at all and we just experience it gradually as as we always have done. And then a part of me is always going, oh, thank goodness. Right. <laughs> Despite that weird groggy, like, wait, where did one hour of sleep go? It's it's worth it. Yeah, it is worth it to me. That one, that one tough morning, by the end of that night when I'm walking home at 6.37 p.m. and it's still light out, mm-hmm. my spirits always lift yes. at this time change. So... Yeah, and so we're talking about this at the equinox because that time of the year is directly associated with the myth of Persephone. Mm -hmm. And the myth of Persephone is directly related to uh, one of our favorite psychopomps, (laughs) (laughs) the Greek goddess Hecate, who plays a part in that myth. Mm -hmm. So we thought we would talk a little bit about Persephone and the symbolism of that myth and Mm -hmm. then talk about... Hecate's role in that myth and her role more broadly as a psychopomp and maybe psychopomps in general and we'll get around to um, saying a little bit more specifically what that word means as well. Yes, yeah. So um, do we want to start off with the definition of that? Yeah, maybe we should. Yeah, so my understanding of this and you definitely add to it um, if you feel like it but The bare bones of what a psychopomp is, is they are a mythological or religious figure who um, guides the souls of the dead Mm -hmm. um, to wherever it is they are going. Yes, indeed. That's about it. Mm -hmm. Um, I looked it up, you know, I looked up the etymology, of course, because I I can't resist. Um, It's Greek. the, the first part of the word comes from the same root that gives us psychology or psychotherapy, mm. and it means the soul. Okay. And then the second part um, comes from a Greek root. Uh, I have here, it looks like pempo or pompo, and it means to send or to conduct. Oh, so it's the conductor of, of souls. souls. Yes. Hmm. Um, but it can also, um, that root is also found interestingly in our word pompous which kind of means yeah like we mean it to we take it to mean like stuffy or uptight or Mm -hmm. you know full of yourself um but it had to do with um the meaning of the word to send um and and with a connotation of a procession like a solemn procession so like a like a religious procession Mm -hmm. for instance um Mm -hmm you know, was, was related to this word pompous. So when we say something is pompous, we kind of mean it's like 
full of ceremony. Oh, and solemnity. And okay. solemnity. Yeah. Interesting. It is interesting. So it's one of those words that's like taken on a different meaning through the years, but it they are related. So if you hear similarities in those words, there's there's a connection there. Okay. For sure. Um and then when I looked up this word, Google very helpfully kind of gave me like a usage chart oh. of how frequently the word, I thought this was interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't have any explanation for this, but it's pretty low until about 1945. Ah. Then there's a gradual slope upward in the appearance of the word psychopomp in, I guess, literature. Okay. And then it begins to come up more sharply right around the year 2000. Interesting. Yeah, which is interesting to okay. me. Okay. So it's maybe more in use now than it used to be. It's come into greater use, mm-hmm. which kind of suggests to me that there's something maybe in a in the contemporary zeitgeist that has need of this idea. Ah, interesting. Yeah, it's funny because um, one of the when I started looking into psychopomps, one of the things I came across because I was um, I thought to myself, oh, I wonder uh, what this might look like um, in my own. Uh, ancestry. So I was looking into Japan and they have something called Shinigami Ooh. who are psychopomps basically. Um, sometimes um, generally psychopomps are thought of to be kind of neutral. They're not doing anything good or but they're not killing the people. Right. They're just ferrying their souls. But the Shinigami are occasionally, it seems like some of them are benevolent and some of them are not benevolent. Oh, They're interesting. They're luring people to their death. Oh, wow. Um, but the one thing that interested me was that this is actually a modern um, concept. Oh, interesting. I believe it started in the Edo period, which is not that long ago. Okay. Um I did not take note the notes that I wanted to, but I believe maybe the 1800s. Um, that sounds right to me. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> yeah, but this is not not you know during kind of like modernity. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And it was kind of thought that it might have been due to Western influence actually. Hmm. So, which is interesting, interesting because this concept is fairly cross cultural. Yeah. Um, but. When I was looking there, that that happened to be what I found. So I was kind of curious about that. That's really interesting. I would love mm-hmm. to. I'm glad you brought that in, and now it makes me want to learn more about that. Mm-hmm. That's super interesting because you you know as you say it is very cross cultural, and I think if you kind of go looking, probably in most cultures you will find some sort of figure who mm-hmm. fulfills this function. Yes. Yeah. I was wondering if. Um, in the last episode, you know, when we were talking about ancestry and you were saying that the idea of ancestry is important in Japanese culture, whether, Mm -hmm. did you find like, uh, do ancestors fulfill any kind of guiding role? So, um, I didn't find anything that they would do that exactly. Mm. I think my understanding is it's more kind of like what we do which is um call in our ancestors help to help us mm. in life okay uh i don't know for sure whether they I, I i actually don't know for sure whether they would um function in that particular way um but one thing that i did come across um that i thought was interesting was um an article on wikipedia i think positing that human people 
can also fulfill this role, mm-hmm. specifically shamans um, and people who do death work, death mm-hmm. doulas especially. Yeah. So I found that really fascinating. That is really fascinating. And I was, I was hoping we would talk about this and I, mm-hmm. maybe since we're here, we'll start on like the human realm because okay. like, I agree. I think there are people who can do, who are humans who kind of fulfill this sort of work, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, someone who is, you know, a human person in a cultural role, like a shaman mm-hmm. who, whose function it is to help souls pass from here to there Mm -hmm. or whether it's a death worker who is helping people and their families kind of on this side of things as they prepare to cross over or one other role that I have seen described as a possible psychopomp role is um, a therapist interesting as someone who can help a client go on an underworld journey into what they're Um, you know, whatever their particular underworld is, we all have one, we have all Mm -hmm. been on an underworld journey Mm -hmm. to guide them through in a way that's not, it's still scary, but you have a guide who is there to help you get through that very difficult process and then guide you back out. Mm -hmm. That's the other essential component. You can go in and you can come back out. Yeah. No, I, uh, I would say my own therapist is actually a beautiful, um, uh, person who's able to do that I would even say depending on the reader and the circumstance that a tarot reader can do something similar yeah um again without saying that a tarot reader and a therapist are the same thing because they are absolutely not um but uh I mean even for myself when I do readings certain readings for myself um I would consider that kind of going and touching into the underworld and coming back up again absolutely um, yeah, I mean, I would say my own, my own therapist absolutely is, you know, working in this territory. And I think, um, we work in a kind of Jungian modality. So I'm often bringing a dream into the session and mm. the dreams as a sort of realm of the unconscious are also an underworld. Yes. So we're kind of going into that territory and then, you know, guiding me through that and then we're coming back out. So yeah, absolutely. I think human people are fulfilling this role and and even there's a and you know to take a slightly more well, to look at it from a different angle, I guess. Um one of the things that you encounter doing or reading about hospice work mm-hmm. is that very often when they're close to death, people have an experience of being met by relatives. Mhm. Um people will experience visits from people who have died who yeah. have come for mm-hmm. the purpose mm-hmm. of guiding them. Ah, okay. Right. And uh, it's a it's fairly well documented, that phenomena. And mm-hmm. probably the scientific explanation is that all kinds of things are happening in the brain close to death. Mm-hmm. But that was a it was a spiritual phenomenon way before it was a scientific phenomenon and science doesn't really have an you know we don't exactly know Mm -hmm. um and so there are a lot of accounts by people who are with people really kind of you know bedside experiencing the person who's dying saying something like oh look it's my mother Mm. or oh look it's my husband or or sometimes a religious figure an angel or yeah, yeah, yeah. My grandmother, um, very close to the end of her life, it was actually one of the things that we thought 
would be was a bit of a signal that she mm-hmm. was coming to that end um was she fixated and she had been um the most sharp and the most on point throughout her entire life um this decline was very sudden um but she fixated on <laughs> some poor random man in her nursing home and was convinced that it was her husband my grandfather uh-huh um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh obviously um it was some poor random man right but uh i think there was something else going on there as well yeah you know she was experiencing the presence of mm-hmm. of her husband yes and I think that is a common experience and I wonder, you know, I have wondered if that experience even has maybe given rise to some of our myths of mm-hmm. psychopomps that they arise out of an experience that humans have of being met by a guide. Oh, interesting. I don't know, you know, no, if I I mean there's no way to know for <laughs> sure, but that doesn't that makes a lot of sense yeah, to me. You know, it, it could make you know, it makes sense to me too. And if I ever go back and do like a an anthropology degree or something, maybe I'll maybe that'll take oh, that'll be my research question, but um <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that I think that there are a number of ways in which humans can find themselves in this role. Um and then when you if you do find yourself in the role, there are these sort of myths that we have as like teaching stories to help mm-hmm. understand how to make sense of being in that role. Yes. Or if you were the person undergoing the underworld journey, there are these stories that can help you look to them to find maybe a guide through that journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's very true. And one of those myths is um, one that I think we probably assume that most people have a vague mm-hmm. understanding of at the very least and uh, that is the myth of Persephone so um, the short version of the story <laughs> is that Persephone is abducted and most likely sexually assaulted mm-hmm. by Hades into the underworld she is a goddess of fertility and um is it harvests? I know Demeter is as well, but Persephone was. I think too, Persephone, I from what I've, from what I've looked up this week. Okay. <laughs> so you know we're not talking like years of extensive knowledge, but mm-hmm. I think that Persephone's fertility is related to spring and the growing of crops, yes. especially wheat. I think she's really That's like it. That's specifically why associated, yeah, with mm-hmm. wheat. And Demeter, you're right, is more when we gather the wheat in yes. at harvest. So she's. Persephone is the new life and Demeter is like the mature life. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, there we go. And um, so this does happen in the springtime, I believe. There's a whole thing about her picking flowers in a field when right. it happens. Right, yes. Um, which, I mean, could be spring or summer, but it's definitely yeah. one of the warmer months. Um And she is, uh, yeah, sorry, so she is abducted by Hades into the underworld. Um, with the permission of Zeus, if I am remembering that I think correctly, that's um, which is a whole boat. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. Up. <laughs> <laughs> Great working guy. <laughs> and this is in some versions of the myth witnessed by the goddess Hecate or mm-hmm. Hecate. 
and um, Demeter, her mother, is inconsolable um, and is trying to find her daughter. And there are a few different ways that this goes, but the basic um, consequence of this is that she withdraws from her duties uh, as goddess of um, growth and harvest and all of those sorts of things. So that's basically how we got winter in the in this particular myth. Um, eventually, Hecate finds Persephone in the underworld. Um, I'm actually getting a little vague here. If you want to like jump in, I so my understanding is that Hecate, one of whose symbols is the torch, mm-hmm. uses her torch to help Demeter search for Persephone. That's it. Yes, and then when they locate her. Light the way back up out of the underworld. Yes. And the catch is that once you have eaten of the food of the dead, mm-hmm. you cannot leave. Mm-hmm. And in some versions of the myth, uh, it's six and in some it's four, but Persephone has eaten some number of pomegranate seeds while she is in yes. the underworld. Mm-hmm. And therefore, she must return to the underworld for that many months of the year. Yes. And so this is the, you know, the, the story, the myth mm-hmm. that gives us the cycle of the seasons. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, to your point about it maybe being spring, I did come across one um, suggestion that possibly instead of the winter being the time when Persephone is in, in the underworld, mm-hmm. it might, because of the climate of Greece, because the summer is so hot and arid, Okay. Um, they suggest that, you know, she might be in the summer, in the underworld actually during the summer. Oh. And then in the winter, when it gets a little bit more temperate and things can, they've gotten all dried out during the summer and they can, you know, mm-hmm. re-moisturize and all of that, that that might be the time when she is above ground. But oh, I think traditionally we tend to associate that. And at least in this hemisphere, I think if mm-hmm. we're interacting with Persephone, mm-hmm. it makes sense to interact with her based on the climate that we have here, which is really makes sense for winter winter to be the time when she is in the underworld and for summer to be the time when she is mm-hmm. once again there to allow new life to yes. to flourish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I find really uh, interesting about this myth is that during the time that she is in the underworld, Persephone becomes the queen. Oh, yes. So... <laughs> <laughs> So there's something about reclaiming power um, from trauma there. Absolutely. Which I find really interesting. Yeah. I am really compelled by that aspect of this myth. Mm-hmm. And there's a growth trajectory in the myth for her from a young woman who's maybe a little bit naive, mm-hmm. who experiences a traumatic event, mm-hmm. and through the the unfolding of the story claims as you say a kind of agency over that mm-hmm. territory and the territory of the underworld is maybe transmuted from something that is happening to her to to a domain over which she is she, sovereign over which she is sovereign exactly that's exactly the right word mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah no it's um i i also have found that part of the myth quite quite compelling. Um, I think as a person who has 
identifies as having spent a lot of time on underworld journeys. Um, and I don't know if you feel this way as well, but I think an underworld journey can look like a lot of different things, but I am, uh, I experience a lot of depression mm-hmm. and for me, that is one type of underworld journey. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. One other thing about, uh, bringing back in the goddess, uh, Hecate or Hecate, is that in some versions of the myth, when Persephone returns to the underworld, um, Hecate goes with her as a companion mm. and almost a counselor, someone who can help her to navigate those realms. That's wonderful. Yeah. I love that. How do you say her name in your own practice? Oh, gosh. I think I say Hecate more than I say Hecate, but I kind of go back and forth. I go back and forth, too. Yeah. I find it's a little different in... in different circles mm-hmm. i might go with hecate for now i think that's probably the most common pronunciation, common pronunciation. at least for english speakers yeah yeah um i haven't experienced her to have a preference so we might as well <laughs> just go with hecate um yeah um i love that that maybe she does she remain in the underworld with Persephone to counsel her through her reign? Or does she guide her and then maybe we don't really know? Uh, that I don't know for sure. Um, my if my understanding of what I remember is um, I think she stays with her as a companion mm. and a helper. Um, which would be a, spending a lot of time together. But... <laughs> <laughs> She's a triple goddess, so maybe she's off doing other things. Yeah, she as well. might be able to have different aspects. <laughs> well, maybe we should talk a little bit about why Hecate is like so well suited to that role and what makes her mm-hmm. a psychopomp figure. Yes, yeah. Because she's not just, this isn't her only aspect. She's got a number of domains. She does. And um, if we want to start at the beginning, at least for the Greeks, um, she is one of the more ancient Greek goddesses. As yes. It, uh, if I'm understanding that correctly, and probably has more ancient origins than that. I was seeing potentially Egyptian, potentially Anatolian. Yeah. Um, but originally, uh, way back when in Greek mythology, she was not a thonic goddess. Mm. She was um, a, the daughter of a titan and a nymph mm-hmm. and had dominion over land, sea, and sky. So <laughs> I just, Sarah's laughing because I did a little shoulder shimmy because I just think that's so, I find that so evocative mm-hmm. and just so immediately, um, she, she becomes a triple goddess later. She mm-hmm. is not a triple goddess to start with, but already that her domain is in these three realms is so, um, mm-hmm. it's very her. Yes. Anyway, continue. <laughs> no, um, I, if you want to uh, talk a little bit about how me, how she became, uh, more, or, how she transformed, I guess. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I don't know exactly how mm-hmm. she how she transforms from that kind of older, maybe Anatolian or Egyptian goddess, as you said, to, mm-hmm. to the triple goddess who she becomes later. Um, so if you have that... That history. I actually don't know either. And I think maybe my very limited research indicates that we're probably not going yeah, to Yeah, I think out. maybe that's true that we, we're yeah. not sure. She's a very complex figure. Very. Um, I but, did, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, sorry. I was just going to say, but at some point she does become more of a thonic figure. 
mm-hmm. um, a figure who is especially associated with crossroads and transitions. Yes. Or, well, crossroads are also yeah. uh, associated with transitions. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when we say thonic, um, that word is spelled C. T-H-O-N-I-C and it relates to figures that are associated with the earth and or the underworld mm-hmm. um, and uh, and you know have there are a number of kind of symbols that are kind of shared across thonic entities and deities sort of mm-hmm. also across cultures like this the serpent is a big one yes um, and she does have an association with snakes and with serpents mm-hmm. um, yeah she is as you said, a goddess of crossroads, which also then makes her someone who has um, associations with roads. Mm-hmm. It is something that she shares in common with another psychopomp figure, Hermes. Oh, one oh, of yes. one of the things I I found as I was looking into different psychopomps is that they often are people associated with travel in some way, mm-hmm. journeys. And even that word pomp that we were talking about earlier that has to do with a procession. It's, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's an association, we move from here to there. There are figures who are very much of their own domain. You know, mm-hmm. they're like figures like, you know, Hestia, who's like of the home and of the hearth and that sacred domain. But then there are these figures that travel yes. and that cross boundaries. And I think that's one of the central... Um, characteristics of of one of these mythological figures who is acting as a psychopomp. So she she guards the places where ways meet, mm-hmm. as we talked about, I think, in episode one. Yes, I believe we did. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the crossroads, and she also became, I think it was after her her entry into the Greek pantheon, she became associated with magic and with witchcraft. Yes, she did. Yes, she did. And I actually looked up, so the, the roots of her name mean worker from afar. Really? Which if, if that's not a definition of a witch, uh-huh. I don't know <laughs> what is. <laughs> yeah, that's what that means. She who works from afar. Mm-hmm. So she was, she's sometimes, uh, portrayed to have a garden of magical and or poisonous plants. Mm-hmm. She has knowledge of medicine, of mm-hmm. using those plants both medicinally and for magical purposes. And there might be something relevant there to talk about. Did you come across anything about the Eleusinian mysteries in your research? Ooh. Uh, I think it came up with per- when I was researching yeah. Persephone, but... Um... I'm drawing a blank if you want to... Yeah, I think it might be worth mentioning as a kind of ritual enactment of this underworld journey. Mm. We don't know everything there is to know about them because this was an annual religious ceremony and initiatory rite. Mm -hmm. And once you had been through the initiation, you were oath-bound not to reveal the secrets of what you had experienced on pain of death. Right. They were serious. Mm -hmm. You're... This is this is a mystery tradition, and you are not to reveal. And the result of that is this series of initiatory rites went on unbroken for about two thousand years, and we don't have any record of certain aspects of what transpired. That is amazing. Yeah, those people kept their oaths. Okay. <laughs> um, what we do know is that they took place in a city that I think was called 
Eleusis or Eleusis or mm-hmm. Eleusis. I am, my Greek pronunciation is very poor, pardon me, but, um, and it was a ritual reenactment of Persephone's descent into the underworld, Demeter's search for her and their return. Okay. And it involved a procession. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would process to the ritual site. And if I'm remembering my undergrad classical mythology course correctly, it took place in a cave. Okay. So you went into a cave. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I mean, where else are you going to go for this? <laughs> <laughs> really? Um, you drank a sacred drink. Okay. And there was some question of whether or not the sacred drink contained an entheogenic or hallucinogenic substance. Mm. So we know it contained barley and it contained pennyroyal. Okay. And there have been traces of a kind of fungus called ergot found at the ritual sites. Okay. Including yes. on one of the drinking vessels. Ergot is... You make LSD out of ergot. You can make LSD out of ergot. Yes. Exactly. Okay. Um, it's a mold that kind of grows on grains and mm-hmm. it can cause... Um, you know, hallucinatory or visionary experiences. Mm-hmm. There's some research that suggests maybe that's part of what was going on in With Salem. The witch trials yeah. in Salem, yes. Um, very, that's a very complex other situation. Yeah. But um, it's possible that an entheogenic substance was ingested. Okay. And then there was a rite. Mm-hmm. We don't know what people saw during the rite. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can kind of extrapolate that there was some sort of ritual enactment of this Mm -hmm. uh, underworld journey Um, and so it is directly related to this mythology it was one of the most important religious ceremonies that that occurred Um, and so you know if there was use of magical plants Mm-hmm. There's maybe a connection also with Hecate in a psychopomp role right. for the participants in the ritual okay. to guide them into an altered state and then back out of the altered state. And of mm-hmm. course, the guidance also would have come from there were the 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 priests and um, priestesses who led this ritual. That was a hereditary role. Mm-hmm. So they it was passed down and kind of trained from a young age that you were fulfilling this role in the mysteries there were two families whose names i can't remember now who had these roles and that was that was their role so you know there's an underworld journey that these people undertook Mm -hmm. um as an initiatory rite and it often i think in mythology for persephone it's an initiatory rite in a way Mm -hmm. a difficult initiation yes but an initiation all the same Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm okay um do we want to talk about our tarot cards yeah maybe it's a good time to bring the tarot cards in yeah and also just to mention that we've kind of been focusing on this on like this greek yes uh set of stories Mm -hmm. but there are psychopomps in every culture and they're not always even anthropomorphic figures some animals yes appear as psychopomp figures as well we just talked about snakes yeah um crows crows and, and ravens. ravens i have um <laughs> i have a funny little uh, experience that i had this past weekend um I am going to get very TMI over a podcast, but Do it. Um, <laughs> my husband and I started trying to have a baby. Yay. Congratulations. And thank you. And that weekend I was seeing crows and ravens 
everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I we were to be fair outside of the city um, in. Um, uh, yeah, we weren't in the city for most of it, although the raven I saw was actually when we came back to Toronto. Ooh, where did you see it? I saw it up, mm. uh, up, um, up Millwood, All right. <laughs> which will mean nothing Yay. to most of our listeners, but that, um, that's, I'm happy about that. Maybe... I've been listening for them. This is the time oh. of the year when I often start to hear them again after mm-hmm. the winter and, uh. I'm pleased to know that they're about, so I'm going to keep an ear out. Ooh, excellent. Yeah, no, no, it must have been about a 10-minute drive from here. Great. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I was seeing seeing and hearing crows all over the place while I was out of town, and then I saw that raven when we came back. I also saw two black dogs, and um, Rebecca knows this, but that is one of the ways that um, I believe that Hecate communicates with me mm-hmm. is through um, black dogs specifically. Yeah. Um, and it just felt like one of those kind of, just this, um, acknowledgement of what a transitional period I'm going through right now. Um, I will admit there was a part of me that was like, oh God, I'm seeing crows and ravens and black dogs all over the place. Like what if something's wrong? Mm. Um, my brain did go there, but, um, I I don't think that that was the message that I was getting. I think it was very much just a like... Sometimes it's just an acknowledgement. It's just like a, yeah, this is the path you're on right now. And um, we see you there. Yep. When I encounter a Corvid, I often have that feeling of, um, of kind of someone being like, yeah, we see you. We see you, uh, you know, looking into the, looking into the abyss, as they say, (laughs) you know, they say, if you look in, it looks back. Oh, you know, that sounds spookier than I mean it to. But I think, you know. When you start poking around around the veil and you kind of start peeking behind, mm-hmm. um, sometimes a raven is like, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm being a little bit glib, I think, in, in maybe there's they have a trickster aspect to them. But it is really, really interesting to me that in almost every culture that coexists with ravens geographically, ravens have, crows and ravens have this uh, cross-borders mm-hmm mythology around them they are often perceived to be birds that can cross between worlds and carry messages as you identified back and mm-hmm. forth yeah um i think not just from here to the other world or the underworld or the land of the dead but maybe back um mm-hmm. there are there are cultures that teach that they can be representations of our ancestors mm-hmm. and they are they are connected with um, they are associated with psychopomp figures in a number of cultures. Um, there's an association between ravens and the Norse Valkyries, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Morrigan. And I'm the Morrigan. Mistaken. And actually, there are a lot of associations between the Morrigan and the Valkyries. Um, oh. There's a number of symbols in common that kind of suggest that, like, they may somewhere very far back share a kind of common Celto-Germanic root. Mm-hmm. Um, of, um, you know, a a spear-carrying, fearsome, raven-associated warrior, Mm -hmm. female divine figure. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I know. Um, You know, why crows and ravens? Well, sometimes the animal has a psychopomp aspect because it literally can consume the bodies of the dead and carry them away, Mm -hmm. Um, which is both gruesome and a kind of sacred aspect of that animal as often these underworld things are there's a mm-hmm. there's a sort of there can be a frightening or distressing element 
to the guide even the guide mm-hmm. you know hecate is not always a um a, a benevolent mm, welcoming mm, and yes she can be quite fearsome yes and is not someone that you're like when she's companioning, like if she's companioning you on a journey, you're not like taking a fun road trip, you know, you're like, this is like, <laughs> um, I, and I think anyone, you know, anyone who is working with any of these figures is going to have a very individual experience with them. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, from a practitioner standpoint, I don't want to say that any of these figures are always one way or another way, but mm-hmm most of these figures kind of contain multitudes and they can have maybe more benevolent aspects Mm -hmm. like Hecate having compassion on Demeter and Persephone and helping in the search, Mm -hmm. or they can have more fearsome aspects, um, you know, as sort of Hecate, maybe the guardian of the crossroads and someone who, um, is, is established over this really liminal space. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. She can be spooky. She can be spooky. Yeah. It's beautiful. I think that's part of the power of the myth is that you enter into a spooky place Mm -hmm. or you, you enter into a fearsome place. Yes. And you perhaps find that in the end, that is a place that is a a source of strength and mm-hmm. e- in even fertility in the case of the Persephone myth, mm-hmm. you know, she's sort of required to go into the underworld so that she can then emerge again and revive the earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's something so powerful about, I think I'll say, I think I might've said this before, but like, the reclaiming of trauma mm-hmm. um, as and it gets really tricky here because I don't want to imply that we that trauma happens to us to teach us a lesson yeah we're totally on the same wavelength yeah. I was thinking that too and I don't mm-hmm. think that's what you are implying yes we're not suggesting that like it's good that you experience trauma mm-hmm. what I do think is that while that trauma does not happen to us for a specific reason, I think we'll never know why bad things happen. Um, but we can make meaning and mm-hmm. we can decide what the lesson from that experience is. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's such an important and real point. Um, and I also do think that no one escapes suffering. Oh, gosh, no. So everyone is going to have this experience of an underworld journey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the remarkable capacities of being human, as you just said, is the we have the gift that we can choose to make meaning of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, not everyone feels like they have access to that gift, but... Um, one thing that that we can call upon psychopomps for is to help us help guide us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Okay. Well, should we bring our tarot cards in? I think that's an excellent idea. Okay. 
So for this one, I am using the Crow Tarot appropriately. Um, the deck is by MJ Cullinane, and we'll link to it. Um, mm-hmm. I think this was a Kickstarter. I believe it might have been at some point, although it's now it's now quite big. published by a mainstream publisher. But yes, yeah. it's and it's actually really funny because I almost used that deck. Did you? <laughs> that would be great if you. But yeah, so I really do like this deck. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you're fond of funny story, um, that deck was given to me um, by a wonderful friend of mine, also named Sarah, who also works closely with Crows and Ravens, and. Oh. Um, Right at a time when they were beginning to emerge in my kind of... I was just seeing a lot of crows and having a lot of crow experiences. Um, I went to a tarot workshop and one of the participants had brought this deck. And I thought, oh my gosh, maybe I need to get my hands on that crow tarot. The next night I went out for dinner with Sarah and she said, someone gave me this deck and I already have it. So I'm going to give you this copy. (laughs) There it was. So synchronicity. Oh yeah. Um... They will get the message to you, (laughs) sometimes very directly. So when I think about a psychopomp in the tarot, we've already spoken about her once in this podcast, but I do think of the high priestess. Mm -hmm. In some ways, there are some images on this card traditionally that are explicitly connected with the Persephone myth. In both this deck, the Crow Tarot, and in the Smith Rider Waite, which mm-hmm. is, this is a Smith Rider Waite style deck, the background against which the priestess is seated is a background of pomegranates. Yes. Um, so, a, you know, a remarkable connection. And also, have you ever held a pomegranate? Yes, And I have. have you ever cut open a pomegranate and seen the inside? Yes. They're the most beautiful fruit. They really are. Oh, all I have to do is hold a pomegranate in my hand to feel like my hand is brimming with magic. And then when you open it and all the blood of the juice comes out and then there are these little gem fruits on the inside. Oh, that just tastes no. so good. Oh, they're so good. No wonder it is associated with magic mm-hmm. and with fertility because of all of the seeds. Yes. So in itself, um, if you are perhaps interested in connecting with Persephone Mm -hmm. offerings of pomegranate is a beautiful way to do it. And they just look so beautiful on your altar. They're red, they're gorgeous. Um, and they traditionally appear for us in the Northern hemisphere. We tend to get them around November. Mm -hmm. So as she is making her descent to the underworld, the pomegranates come into season for, they're not in season here. They don't grow here. We get them shipped. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, yeah, food systems, not today. (laughs) Um, but But yeah, um, so not only does she have this direct association with the Persephone story, but in the Smith-Waite deck, she is seated between two pillars, a black pillar and a white pillar. Mm -hmm. So I always have this sense of her as really being in between and someone who can travel from one realm to another realm Mm -hmm. and someone who is interested especially in inner journeys. Yes. Inward travel, Mm -hmm. which is how many of us are going to experience, if we are to experience an underworld journey, it is going to be an inward journey. Mm -hmm. And the psychopomp who guides us is someone who's going to be able to guide us through an inner realm. Yes. Whether that is an inner guide that we call upon or whether we reach out Mm -hmm. to an external guide in the form of a counselor or a therapist or someone we trust to help us walk through that dark place. Um it's an inner journey that we're on. And I 
feel like the priestess mm-hmm. is such a, such a strong archetype of someone who can go inward like that. Mm-hmm. One thing that's interesting to me about this deck is that the priestess also has on this card, so on this card, the the raven is seated on a crescent moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's veiled, so she has a veil that is a boundary between an inner and an external world and a boundary between this world and the other world. Mm-hmm. Um, but she also has with her all four, an, an emblem of all four suits. There's a cup, a wand, a sword, and a pentacle. Oh, that's so interesting. Isn't that... Usually that happens with the magician. Yes. I'd forgotten that that is actually true with this That's deck. in this deck. And I think I haven't seen that in another deck with no. this card. Um, and it's... I, I found myself thinking about it today. It is, it's also on the magician. Mm-hmm. It is traditionally associated that the magician has all of these tools. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of feel like this deck is setting the priestess as kind of a counterpart to the magician. Yes. In a way that's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. We just described Hecate as one who works from afar. Mm-hmm. That is such an apt description of a magician. And maybe the magician is, in this deck at least, aligned with working your will in the world, mm-hmm. in an outer world, and perhaps the priestess is using these same tools for working in an mm. inner world. Oh, that is so beautiful. Yeah, I really like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you could maybe quibble about kind of conflating those two major arcana in that way, but I I think... I think I've seen other people talk okay. about them being like almost like two parts of yeah. the same... Yeah, yeah. Um, um, different aspects you know mm-hmm. we can traditionally the magician has been coded as male and the priestess has been coded as female mm-hmm. we can i think obviously say here that like they all they can embody aspects of all genders mm-hmm. but there is maybe something interesting about looking at them as at certain points on the spectrum of gender mm-hmm. but also i think maybe more interestingly for this deck they're on a spectrum of where where your where your attention is the magician may be doing work to bring your outer circumstances into alignment with your will Mm -hmm. and the priestess doing work to bring your inner self into alignment Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and being on that kind of a journey so i think this is an I, i like this priestess card it's also just a really beautiful card the deck is is very very beautiful it's gorgeous. It's yeah. got this imagery that's almost haunting sometimes. Yeah, and I find the colors and um, mm-hmm. it's a kind of, the artwork is a sort of digital collage and it's very distinctive. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, for this topic, mm-hmm. I thought maybe we'd we'd bring the priestess back. I love um, it. Would you like to... Yeah, so today I have brought two cards from the Fifth Spirit Tarot deck. Amazing. Um, which is, oh my gosh, such a gorgeous, um, definitely Smith Rider Waite like inspired, but um, it's really kind of its own thing. Uh, and the creator is um, just this really cool non-binary person. So uh, the, the way that this deck plays with gender presentation and kind of smashing the binary is really beautiful. And I have brought the tower and the star because 
Um, well, the tower, I actually asked the deck which one wanted to come forward. Hmm. And uh, when I pulled it, I just had this feeling. I was like, you know what? If I'm going to talk about the tower, I think I want to talk about the star as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually funny. I think a lot of what I had wanted to say about the tower, I've said. Um, but it's a really big card that can play in a few different realms, but I think what I really was interested in with the tower, something that I've been thinking about lately is that meaning making, Mm. um, that we've been talking about. Um, in this particular card, we see a house that has been struck by lightning and is completely ablaze. Uh, and in front of this house, kneeling on the ground with a crown next to them, mm. uh, is a figure watching this happen. It's, it's a powerful card. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so usually if it's a little more, um, Smith Rider weight inspired, you'll see a tower, it'll have been struck by lightning, parts of it are falling off, people are diving out of the windows, dead or alive we're not sure Mm -hmm. um and that crown falling to the ground is also another um pretty uh standard image Mm. but there's something about this particular card with this person just kneeling and watching this happen um and that kneeling position almost makes me think of prayer and i guess there is Something about how we can take our trauma and reclaim it um, that we've been discussing with mm-hmm. Underworld Journeys here that just really spoke to me. And so, yeah, having said, I think, kind of what I wanted to say already about that, I'm going to move into the star, which is the card that follows it in the Major Arcana. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going linearly, those cards often, I would say do not show up as linearly as we would generally expect them right. to. But, um, uh, yeah, yeah, it is the following card um, if we're looking at it in line. And the star is that first light we see after the darkness. Yeah. And with the sun coming back right now um, and with this episode coming up on the equinox, it just felt like such a beautiful card to bring in to remind us that we go on underworld journeys to come back out again yeah we do not go down into the dark to stay there no mortal humans cannot stay there no we cannot we are not meant to live there we are meant to journey there to learn something um, or to change something or to understand something. Mm-hmm. Um, and we bring that back out as a transformed person. And that, whatever wisdom we are able to find in that dark place, whether it is simply that we are capable of coming back out, mm-hmm. um, I say simply, I think that's a huge thing to know about yourself. Um, But I think the wisdom that we can find in Underworld Journeys is extensive. There are so many lessons that we can learn there. But when we come back out, when we see that first light in the sky saying, have hope, have faith, the sun is coming back. 
um, I don't know. I just think that uh, that is a feeling that is very with me around this time of year. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just so important to remember that um, whether it's a dark night of the soul, whether it's um, an episode of depression, whether it's um, grief after a loss, um, there is always, we don't stay in that space. We do always yeah. come back out. And and then we go back there at some point in mm-hmm. the future, probably. Yep. Um, but it doesn't have to be... We can become the sovereigns of that realm. We can become familiar with that landscape. We can find ways to find guides to help us through, find our own inner strength to help us through. Um, we can, yeah, we just, um, people are beautifully resilient. Yes. <laughs> and healing is always possible. I guess I got a little uh, corny there, but <laughs> it's hard not to, mm-hmm. you know, and I think there's a difference. It's funny where I feel like we're in an age where like sincerity is automatically yeah. viewed as corniness, but like yeah. actually you can, I think, be sincere, mm-hmm. especially if you have experienced and been through this process and you in fact do know mm-hmm. that it's possible to depart from the underworld again mm-hmm. and that at some point you do see the star and you think oh mm-hmm. you know we're we're almost we're almost out we're almost to the mouth of this cave yeah um i love that those two cards are next to each other in the deck if you are looking at the major arcana as a kind of journey which is one way of looking at them mm-hmm you know, it's, it's reminding me that we rarely choose to go on an underworld journey. Yes. You know, as Persephone did not, her mm-hmm. underworld journey was the result of a precipitating traumatic event, and it's often so for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we didn't ask for it. Mm-hmm. It's not fair that it happened. Yep. But we are also in the company of many such who have had that happen and have pass through that journey before and can help guide us mm-hmm. through it now. Yep. <sighs> yeah. I feel like this is coming to a natural Maybe that's a good place to wrap it up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. With that one little light in the sky leading mm-hmm. us forward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And by the time you hear this... If you listen on the day this comes out, you will be at the crossroads of winter and spring. Mm-hmm. You yes. will be at the balance and the tipping point, and that's uh, a wonderful place to to be thinking about emerging from the underworld journey of winter. And um, we are excited to move forward into that next mm-hmm. phase of the year. We really are, yes. And um, it might be... We'll see how the weather goes, but it might be proper spring by the time we yes. come out with our next episode. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, we're almost there. You know what's you know what's a funny indicator for me is like when I'm buying coffee cream and I see that the date is like the expiry date is like May something. I'm like, oh, we're almost there. <laughs> you know, it's like I don't know why that's the thing, but it's like once the once the the creamer expiry date starts to move into spring, I'm like, yeah, we're getting there. <laughs> 
it's so weird. Um, it, no, it's uh, it's kind of perfect. It's it's really funny because it's been feeling very spring-like here, even though we have more snow on the ground now than we had for most all of winter, the winter. All winter, yeah. <laughs> but today especially, it's getting mild, so mm-hmm. we are we are getting there. We are. Um, if you want to tell us about your favorite psychopomp, you Ooh. can email us. <laughs> yes, yes. At um, across the river podcast at gmail.com. Yes. That is all one word, all lowercase. Well, yeah. It doesn't matter if it's lowercase. I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters. Yeah, it's all one word. All one word. Across the river podcast at gmail.com. We didn't even talk about crossing the river. Oh my god. And gosh. I mean, you know, we're called across the river because <laughs> so much mythology places the underworld on the other side of a river and there mm-hmm. is someone who you have to negotiate with to get you across mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um you know you may I, have to pay the ferryman you may have to pay the ferryman um or if you're not supposed to be there you may have to convince the ferryman to let you in to anyway. let you in anyway and you know i mean i think that pertains to what you were saying with the star if you are not meant to be in the underworld mm-hmm. those who rule there will not let you stay for all that long so mm-hmm. um you will be returning to that star whether you feel ready to or not. <laughs> but yeah, um, but yeah, we are across the river at gmail.com. Um, maybe if you're enjoying the podcast, you could write a review. That was something I wanted to yeah. say. Yes, we <laughs> always forget this, but um, my understanding is that reviews are great for the algorithm. Yeah. So if you would drop us one we would be so grateful (laughs) yes indeed i'm trying to like find a way to relate algorithms to an underworld journey i just don't think i can (laughs) algorithms are a scourge of our modern age but if you are enjoying across the river and you think more people um would enjoy listening to us talk about death and magic then um we would be so so grateful and thrilled if you leave us a review Mm -hmm. yes On that note, happy spring, everybody. Happy spring, happy equinox, happy Ostara, if you observe Ostara. Mm -hmm. Um, And we will see you again. um, On the next dark moon. On the next dark moon. Mm -hmm. All right. Take care, everyone. Goodbye.